My name is Mia Bloom. I'm a professor at Georgia State University and the International Security Fellow at The New America. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. So you have studied a wide range of extremism, and you also are posting on Twitter a wide range of different recipes that you make and food. And I was just wondering if there's certain foods that you think sort of pair better with the type of extremism that you're looking at at the time, like almost like, are you an extremism sommelier in some way? Well, it's always going to be bourbon. Because I think some of the stuff that I study would drive most people to drink. But the reason I was doing the food was I realized or discovered early into the pandemic that many of my friends and colleagues had relied very heavily on takeout and uh, ready meals. And people both didn't have access to restaurants and some people were having some financial issues. And I didn't realize how few of my friends cooked. And I had been trained to cook. And so I thought, well there's something maybe I can actually do to help people is create these recipes. They were all under $5 a person. I did a lot of substitution because we were being encouraged not to constantly go to the grocery store. So I was using canned foods, things that people already had and using them in really interesting ways. And then I started, you know, doing recipes from really fancy restaurants because people miss travel. And it was really nice because I started getting, you know, chefs like, Stephanie Izzard in uh, Chicago or other chefs that I would do their recipes. The idea was to try to help people. I stopped after George Floyd because I'll be honest with you, I didn't think my cute little funny videos about cooking, given what was going on in the country, I just decided, you know, I had already posted like 70, 75 recipes and I thought that was kind of good enough. I loved seeing them. They always looked delicious and inspired me actually to start cooking in part also because of the pandemic. I find it as like a real actual escape from from the work that we do. And the nice thing about cooking is there was a beginning, a middle, and an end. So if you weren't introducing yourself at parties when there's not a pandemic as I'm an extremism expert, would you have wanted to be a chef or what was the other alternative for you? It's actually a funny story. So at a very, very young age, I, I was working for Ralph Lauren in the menswear division, putting together different color combinations. And I was offered at some point executive training. I debated it. And then I came into the office one day and they said, did you see the papers? And it was in the middle of the Libya crisis. And I was like, you know, the Akil Laura, like what was going on? And they're like, hemlines. And I went, yeah, this is not for me. So I had sort of another early career in fashion. And then I was really interested in archaeology. I think everyone who ever goes to Masada, like you want to become an archaeologist. So... I mean, there were all these different things that I thought about, but at some point I was ready to give up. The academic thing didn't seem to be working. It wasn't easy. And like people seem to think that the moment 9-11 happened, someone who would study terrorism would be snapped up, but it actually didn't work that way. And as uh, Bruce Hoffman says in the intro to Inside Terrorism, for the longest period of time, terrorism was political science's 
forgotten stepson or stepchild. Mm -hmm. And um, it looks in some ways that way now that we need to pivot to realize what's going on in the world so that I tell my students, I don't think being a jihadism scholar, unless you're Thomas Heghammer, is going to work for you in, you know, 2021. Like you need to take a step back and look at extremism across a number of groups the way you do. Let me just say, you've certainly done that, right? I mean, whether it's incels, ISIS, whether it's QAnon, I mean, your studies and, and your sort of collaborations have spanned the broader scope. But what was your initial path into this work? In other words, like what was wrong with you that made you want to spend all this time looking at these topics? So I went to like an Orthodox yeshiva day school and the top two students got a free ride for one year, either to Hebrew U or Tel Aviv U. And so I went to Tel Aviv and probably in my first month there, I was at the Tachana Merkazi, which is the central bus station. And there was a bomb and the Israelis defused the bomb and everybody went back to normal like there was no bomb. And that was very early, that was in the 80s. And I happened to be at Tel Aviv University, so I got to study with Itamar Rabinovich and Asher Susser and Yaakov Roy. And so I was studying all this stuff way before it was, you know, cool or trendy. And the other thing is, and it's worth mentioning, the reason I'm able to go across these groups, anyone who studied terrorism before 9-11 probably studied the Red Brigades and the Bader Meinhof and all the different groups, you know, IRA, like all the alphabet soup of groups. Like left-wing extremist groups that people refer to groups. now, but have a totally different name for it. Yeah. Exactly. But if you only started studying terrorism after 9-11, you looked at terrorism through this very narrow prism that everything was jihadi. And I think that for the people who were studying terrorism before, it's not difficult to pivot to look at other groups because you can pick out the similarities. What looks like an incel versus what looks like right-wing militias versus what the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam did in Sri Lanka or the FARC in Colombia or sort of the crime terror nexus in different places. So I think that's where people who studied it before, and there was, you know, like a dozen or so of us, that were studying it. Many people influenced either by Spanish, Irish, or Israeli experiences with terrorism, because before 9-11, those were the countries that would have had the most experiences. It's much easier for people who didn't only start studying after 9-11 because your mind readily accepts the possibility of non-jihadism as a source of terror, but also you have enough of like a Rolodex of different kinds of tactics in your brain. So I'd be remiss not to mention that we are recording in the wake of an attack in Atlanta in which at least eight people have been killed. The motivation remains unclear. And yet many people are turning to social media to understand, and they are finding a wide range of interpretations as to what was the motivation, even though a full investigation hasn't occurred. This happens every time there is a mass shooting or an attack of some sort. And, you know, in some ways, there are clues that people are looking for to understand. But I'm always struck by the potential damage that initial reactions can do in terms of understanding extremism. I wanted to get a bit of your sense about that. What is the responsibility of 
academics or journalists to provide relevant context in a way that doesn't confuse a situation that is still in the progress of being figured out? I think there's kind of a nexus of the problem. First of all, add in a 24-hour news cycle where, you know, they need to keep filling it with stuff. We don't allow ourselves the time and distance and care it requires to fully investigate a story. But it's also that there is this kind of strange competition for, you know, who says it first, who tweets it first, who gets invited onto the chat shows, who's going to be interviewed for their expertise. There is, I think, a certain responsibility that we don't end up doing a terrorist, like when we're talking, not necessarily that this particular uh, incident with the 21-year-old whose last name is Long, it's not necessarily terrorism, but we end up doing the terrorist organization's job for them Mm -hmm. by amplifying their message and giving them a platform, and we have to be more responsible in it. The problem is giving it a label now very early before all the information is in. Someone called me and, you know, they're like, could it be QAnon? And so I looked and I was like, okay, well, he's affiliated with this Baptist church. I don't see, I mean, QAnon's connected to evangelicals, not Baptists. So it was more like a process of elimination, what I didn't think it was. I think it's okay to still be angry and outraged and understand the impact it may have on communities, even if it doesn't prove to be the sort of primary motivating factor, right? And it seems like for many folks, there's usually a collection of factors that are the true drivers anyway. But, you know, in this case, in some ways, I think the initial narratives are that this attack underscores either attacks against the AAPI community that we've seen in real ways. You know, I think six out of the eight victims were Asian as of the last sort of uh, reporting, but also that women all too often bear the brunt of men's rage irregardless of the way this sort of works out in terms of total motivation, there is something there that speaks to the concerns that people have, and that's why it's being raised, right? We know that there's anti-Asian hate crimes happening at this moment that this occurred. We know that there's probably an underreporting of the attacks against women as part of, if not incels, just sort of this manosphere, misogynistic sort of subculture. And I know you've done a lot of work with that. For people who don't necessarily recognize or know some of the ins and outs of these sort of broader movement, can you talk a bit about this emerging terrorist movement, perhaps, or extremist movement? Well, one of the things that I did when I, uh, I guess one of my last trips was to talk to the Anti-Defamation League, the Radicalization Board, and I presented the preliminary research that Shuki Cohen and I had been doing on incels, which is involuntary celibates. And I remember picking out different elements that no one really talks about. Like, first of all, because Shuki isn't just selecting on the dependent variable, if we look at the number of well-known attacks, people like Elliot Roger or Alec Manassian, we are going to get a sense that, oh, incel is the next new terrorist group. But because Shuki is on the platforms and he sees the hundreds of thousands of other incels who are not engaged in this kind of violence plowing someone down with your car or a shooting at a university. The determination was most incels actually were more dangerous to themselves than to others. And I think a lot of this is lost because I'll make the argument about incels as well as people who believe in QAnon. It's some of the same things that 
you know, let's not just look at the tip of the iceberg that's above the water, but let's look at the entirety of what's underneath the surface and get a sense of context. And, you know, let's put these things in proportion. This is more likely to be part of a greater ecosystem of anti-Asian and Pacific Islanders that has been as a result of some of the dog whistles that have been coming out of the upper levels of the American government for about four years. And so last <laughs> night, someone at the AJC said, well, you know, this is, we just haven't had very much of this. And I said, what you just said, no, no, we have, you forget, we haven't seen it reported, but we know that the bias is there. We've seen things like in California because people catch it on the cameras, the CCTV. So I think like with violence against women, there is a lot of bias that is not being reported. It has been in some ways amplified by one political party, which is unfortunate because this whole idea of like we're in it together is completely blown asunder when you're only going to get one side of the political spectrum that's like we're all Americans and the other side of the political spectrum is saying Wuhan flu or Kung flu or some other racist version of yeah. that. I think some of the best known images from the January 6th events at the Capitol largely featured men decked out in camouflage, MAGA hats, maybe some QAnon paraphernalia. But, you know, we've done a little bit of a study on those who have been charged. And at least about 15% of those who were charged were women. I think this is an unusually high number of women to be take part in a right-wing extremist event, if the past is any indication. And it seems like maybe QAnon in particular, in terms of attracting, probably has a role there. Can you talk a bit about your work looking at QAnon and in particular, those who are attracted to that? Is there something about that that in some ways is not appealing to sort of this masculine culture or some of the other elements of some of the extremist groups that makes it more available to a wider range of, of people and why that is? Because I was interested in women in terrorism, I hearkened to Kathleen Bellew's work on women in the far right. So the women have always been there, but they haven't necessarily been obvious because they're not necessarily the ones that get arrested. They're the ones that are, you know, helping prepare things in advance or their role had been more traditional roles. Like we saw in ISIS, give birth to lots of white babies and raise them properly as, you know, nice strong mujahids, right. as jihadis. The difference with QAnon, and also it's, it's wrapped up, it's so difficult to disaggregate the QAnon from the Trump supporter. We saw a lot of women who supported Trump. And in fact, the people who paid for the buses out there on January 6th and got the permits to have a demonstration, it was women for Trump. And so a lot of this is, is wrapped up in the much more forward-leaning role that women have played on the far right since Trump took office, but also because of Pizzagate before Q and then in QAnon. Interestingly enough, Facebook has data, and you can see almost a flat posting or discussions on Facebook of QAnon, and then March 2020 happens, and it shoots up 174%. One of the reasons why is that it wasn't just Facebook. Once QAnon sort of jumped the shark to Instagram, which was very visual, but also very female, it then started to attract not just women on the right, 
but also women on the left, people who believed in um, essential oils and veganism and natural childbirth and breastfeeding and all the things that we tend to associate with, you know, the granola, hippy dippy, crunchy crowd. Mm -hmm. So it explains in part that when AEI released the results of its survey last month in the uptick in belief in QAnon, despite everything that happened in DC, we saw 6% Democrats. If a woman has been talking about this QAnon stuff for two years and her family is already like, okay, we're not inviting Auntie Rebecca to Christmas anymore and we're not having her as part of our Zoom calls because she's driving us crazy. Imagine now that that woman has given up so much because of her beliefs, those sunk costs may keep her anchored. It's an investment and it's hard when you invest so much time and energy into something. It is, it is hard to sort of leave it behind. You mentioned sort of the stickiness of it. I think conspiracy theories in general, because they're able to just morph with whatever's happening next, and that creates a, a level of stickiness that is important. But they're also super good at creating content. Some of the supporters just create very compelling visuals and content that sucks you in and you want to watch more. Could you tell me about content that you've seen created, even if it's a piece of media, that you actually appreciate for its role in deterring or preventing extremism? It's very difficult for me to convince a QAnon person that I'm not drinking blood, especially since I've barely aged over these years. And so, of course, <laughs> you know, we did that thing where you showed yourself 10 years ago and 10 years ago and 10 years ago. So I was able to go back to 1989 and my friends were like, oh, my God. So, yes, it's all the adrenochrome. One of the things as I was studying QAnon is you realize conspiracy theories offer some sort of palliative or sucker that make people feel better than the reality of a lot of things happen and bad things happen to good people. And it's important for people to at least have access to the context. I mean, you've been providing on many, many different extremist movements now for quite a while. Given that some extremists really seek to destroy or uproot elements of society. Are there aspects of society that you feel we really need to help preserve and that you appreciate? Like, is there a way of uplifting, is it democratic institutions that we ought to focus on as, as a counterbalance or response to uh, some of these extremist narratives? I think it's important that the institutions like you know, the media, like our democratic institutions, like the military and the judiciary, we need to approach this and understand that there's some vestigial bias in all of these institutions, that as we are addressing issues of social justice, this is not about some pendulum of wokeness. In order for us to have a just society, there has to be representation. At least with some of these institutions, people are very reticent to ever criticize them because it makes them look, well, you don't love the troops or you're un-American. So I think that there's a way of us bolstering the positive and excising the negative elements without being accused of being anti-American or not loving America. Yeah, it's about preserving institutions by holding them accountable. That, that, that's totally reasonable. And by holding them accountable to what they are meant to be for all of society, I do agree. I think that is a way to push back against those who fundamentally want to undermine them. They're not looking to, to, to fix them. How do you deal with the heaviness of the content that you're, you're looking at every day? How do you sort of take 
the time that you need, create that distance or, or, or deal with it. So this is going to sound very Pollyanna, but, you know, in the course of the four years that me and my research team, so the grad students and I, were inside the ISIS telegram chat rooms and the channels, we were able to prevent 12 terrorist attacks. Stuff that didn't happen that you don't know about because it didn't happen. And so part of what gets me through the horrible thing is thinking what I do might actually help people and save lives. And the fact that we did actually prevent these attacks, like that was better than all the publications and the TV interviews and even the grants that I was able to get. That is something that's unique amongst certain people who do this work, that some of your greatest achievements are never going to be known. If somebody wanted to take part in pushing back against hatred, right, wanted to be part of the solution, maybe not stop, you know, 12 terrorist attacks, but do something that they can do to impact this. Is there any advice that you would give the average person who's not an academic, who's not a researcher, who's not, you know, running a center of what they can do to help push back against all this? I think I'm going to quote Wajat Ali, who's a friend of mine, and he's really big on Twitter and used to be a CNN analyst as well. He basically says, at some point, sit down and have a meal with someone that doesn't look like you. As we expand our experiences of other races, cultures, orientations, everything, it's much harder for anyone to stereotype them because you might go, yeah, okay, yeah, but you know what, except this person, this person's okay. Like you're almost inoculating yourself from someone coming around and making some, you know, horrible assertion about a group because you have these exceptions in your brain. Just a a couple more questions. Any uh, advice, warning uh, that you would give your, your students that you work with or others about getting into this racket? (laughs) Um, You know, things that they ought to keep in mind. It is a conversation I very often have with my grad students because they're looking at the other side. They're looking at me being a full professor, having all these books and grants and whatever else, and, you know, being on CNN once a week. And they think, oh, yeah, that's how it's going to be. And that's that's really that's the product of many decades of very hard work. And I think that on the one hand, you have a comparative advantage doing this work as a woman. And so it's the kind of thing that I've talked to Jessica Stern about and other women in the field that as a woman, everyone is going to underestimate you. And you can either be horribly offended by that or you can use it to your advantage. And I remember being at the headquarters of the LTTE in Sri Lanka, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. And they're like, it's just a woman. You can talk in front of her. I'm just like taking notes. I'm just a woman. The reaction now would be, how dare? you know, anti-female misogyny and bias. And I'm like, yeah, but then you can use it to your benefit. Let me actually explore that a little bit. So are you suggesting that being a woman in this field has now gotten more difficult, more challenges than it was earlier on? I think there's more challenges in part because there are still things like mantles. I have seen on more than one instance, there'll be an event and it's all the men and they kind of forgot that, There's women who have been doing this for years and years. And I'm very pleased, for example, now as we've been talking more and more about white nationalism, extremism, neo-Nazis, that so many of the best researchers are all women Mm -hmm. and that we're all helping each other. 
So I recommend Cynthia Miller Idris, who will recommend Kathleen Lee and Kathleen Bellew, because it's very difficult with all these assumptions that, you know, uh, women aren't going to do as well studying extremism. When you look at the numbers, it's at least 50-50, if not more. But then, you know, you'll have an event in D.C. And it's like that line, was it Clayvon Martin going, where do white women at? You know, like there's just so women. There you go. I knew, I knew Mel Brooks was going to yeah, you know, come Brooks up in this conversation at some point. I mean, it, that, that had to happen. It's really interesting. You know, I mean, you mentioned some of these women, Kathleen Blee, Cynthia Miller Idris, you know, folks who have been kind enough to be on this podcast. I mean, Cynthia Miller Idris and I created this podcast in a Uber in Pittsburgh one day actually leaving a conversation with Kathleen Blee. So on the Center on Extremism at ADL, it's always been like this, I believe, but the amount of women experts and investigators and analysts has always outnumbered, frankly, the men. I think this is really important for people who listen to this podcast, who want to learn about kind of the pathway into this work, to hear from the experiences of the challenges that they may face. What are some of the pitfalls that they should think about to be able to like jump over it as they're getting into this business. On International Women's Day, I sent around a screenshot from uh, Hamilton to, you know, all of my students. And it says, you know, he got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter and being a self-starter. And I said, that's what it is to be a woman in academia in general. And you have to be almost single-minded in your approach. And that's one of the reasons why for the longest time in my Twitter, I had a shark because I'm like the shark. Just keep going. Don't notice anything else and just keep going. It's tough for women because a lot of women are, are you know, they're going to be looking for the life work balance. You see a lot of men who are successful, but their wives are doing all the stuff at home and with the kids and, you know, picking up the dry cleaning and having the car serviced and they're doing everything. And all the men do is they come and they may still put the kids to bed and, you know, help. But all the externalities, like all the noise has been cleared away. And we've seen this on steroids during the pandemic, that that's why so many women have been affected more so than men, either women giving up their jobs to stay home because so much has landed on women. And I think that telling young women otherwise, we don't want to deal in how the world should be. We should deal in how the world is. But that the more senior women there are at the table, the more we can bring people along with us and help elevate other women. But if we never get to the point where we're at the table, it's not going to help us to make like, and again, I, it's going to sound very anti-woke of me, but that's why with the junior faculty, I'm like, let me be the obnoxious person saying these things. You can be quiet and seem very affable. And then once you have tenure, you can be the person advocating, but you're not going to see successful women who from the get-go are shaking things up. And that's unfortunate. I know that that sounds a little bit old fashioned. I will support all the women shaking things up, but I'm also going to say to the women, exercise better choices on social media, how you present yourself, realize that we are still within the confines of a society that is in transition. I really, really think your perspective on sort of the role of women in combating extremism is super valuable for the audience to hear. Are there any other things that you want to have an opportunity to say before we sign off? I wanted to sort of mention Abdul Hai Mia. So we were like Mia and Mia. 
in the UK, he was a Salafi police officer and he was the UK's top hostage negotiator. And Abdul Hai was saying to me once that, you know, the trick was getting the mother involved. So not necessarily the wife, the wife could actually have been the person egging them on towards radicalization. They don't let the suicide bomber talk to their mother for like two months before, because they're worried that talking to the mother might convince them otherwise. I think that women have a particularly important role that they can play. It's not a given, but I think that we should leverage women more in this space to try to get women's voices to be like, listen, this was my experience. I want to try to end on a hopeful note. I think that we have it within our power to help address these issues. I'm not going to say that there's root causes because that's too easy. If there's a root cause, there's a root solution. I think that there are different kinds of things that we need to start looking at in our society and also looking at our own behavior and ignore the sort of craziness from Fox News that's talking about Mr. Potato Head or Dr. Seuss. This is all a distraction. Eye on the prize. What are the things that we can do to make everyday Americans' life better? How do we approach terrorism? Because we have to always remember what John Mueller says. Terrorism is a statistically insignificant event. Thank goodness. But we have built it up into something that changes everything. 9-11 changed everything. I'm going to quote Mueller for a second. He says, you have a better chance of being hit by lightning twice than being killed by a terrorist. We need to put these things in perspective and look at the things, the big important issues and not the showy clickbaity stuff. Samia, where can people who want to learn more about you and your work go to find that out? I have a webpage at New America. I also work very closely with the uh, evidence-based cybersecurity program at Georgia State University. It's on my Twitter, so there's a link, as well as the fact that if anyone ever contacts me, I try to always answer, you know, back, as long as it's a, like a polite <laughs> comment. And this is the other thing, uh, the last part for the women. You will be judged by a whole additional set of criteria that has nothing to do with your brain and your accomplishments. Steal yourself mentally for it. Mia, thank you so much. I always appreciate getting the DM about something that maybe I hadn't seen or being reminded of something that is important that I hadn't thought about, but really appreciate all the work that you've done in this field and continuing to raise the issue, whether it's ISIS, whether it's incels, whether it's QAnon, clearly there are lessons to be learned from all these movements and being able to put it all together coherently to teach people about what they need to care about is something you just do really, really well. So thank you for what you do. And it's always nice talking to you. Thank you so much for inviting me and including me. I, I was honored to do this. And you know, when you asked, I said yes, probably 30 seconds after you asked. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org.
American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.